Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sarah Ellis, and this is the Squiggly Careers podcast, where every week we discuss a different topic to do with work and share some ideas, actions, and advice that we hope will help you Anna's to navigate our squiggly careers with confidence and control. This episode is part of our fourth Ask the Expert series. We're covering a really great range of what I hope are very relevant topics, including uncertainty, influence, storytelling, success and leadership. And in this episode, you'll hear my conversation with journalist and writer Oliver Berkman on time. Time is just one of those topics that I feel like we all talk about, worry about, want to discover how to have more of, how to use it in a better way. And Oliver's new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It, is brilliant. Just a great mix of practical, pragmatic and philosophical, which I think is very unusual. And Adam Grant has described it as the go-to book on time management, which is some kudos. And I followed Oliver's writing since he used to write for The Guardian on things like productivity for a long time. And I feel like he's use this book to bring all of his experience and wisdom and learning together into one place into a really accessible and enjoyable read and I would imagine that everyone who reads it will benefit from it in some way shape or form. All of our episodes in this series are supported by the Uncertainty Experts and this is a three-part interactive documentary that's designed to increase resilience and decrease anxiety. I took part in the pilot and if you've listened to the uncertainty episode you would have heard me talk to Sam and Catherine about it and I can tell you it was a learning experience like no other and it really worked not just for me but it's been scientifically proven to have a positive impact in terms of how you can figure out and find your way through uncertainty and if you want to get involved you can sign up to be part of the next series in November and we'll add the link to the show notes so you can do that. And if you use the code squiggly, you get an extra bonus discount too. At the end of the podcast, you'll also get the chance to hear a really short clip from one of our uncertainty experts. So I'd really recommend just adding two or three extra minutes onto your listen today because they share very personal, fascinating stories of overcoming uncertainty. Whether it's a gang leader who's gone on to become a business leader, refugees who've become CEOs, a real unique opportunity for us to borrow some brilliance and to learn from people who we probably wouldn't get the chance to spend time with normally. So hopefully you can just add an extra couple of minutes onto your listen today. But for now, here's my conversation with Oliver Berkman. I hope you find it useful. So Oliver, thank you so much for joining us on the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, It's a pleasure. Me too. Yeah. And so... 
I have spent the last four or five weeks reading, rereading your book, coming back to parts of it. There's lots of underlining and there's lots of pages turned down. And I was um, really interested to know, when you were researching the book and through the conversations that you've had, what surprised you most about our relationship with time and how we use it? Was there anything that you sort of hadn't expected that you discovered along the way? That's an interesting question. I mean, on some level, I want to say that the whole basic thesis of the book, which is just in a sentence, I think that we struggle to have this kind of total degree of control over time to feel like we're in command, that we can do everything that's thrown at us, that we know how the future will unfold, that we're sort of the masters of our time. It was a big sort of revelation to me, firstly, that that was my own motivation in struggling with time, and also how much that seemed to resonate with people in sort of radically different kinds of people. So not everyone is a kind of schedules and to-do lists weirdo geek like me, but also people who just feel overwhelmed by their work and family life, people who have are filled with ideas about all the different businesses they want to launch, you know, all sorts of different kinds of personality and lifestyle, all kind of sharing this sense that you're not quite in charge yet, you're not quite in the driver's seat, but that's going to happen maybe next month if you really put some elbow into it, but you're not quite there yet. I've been really struck at how sort of near universal some version of that seems to be. And I was interested to know, because the book came out in August, but I'm guessing you were doing lots of the writing and some of the thinking of the book during the pandemic. Did the pandemic impact anything in terms of the content of the book or your perspective or your thoughts? Did it change people's relationship with time, do you think? Or are these universal themes that really haven't been significantly impacted? I think they are universal themes, but I think that it's all come to a head. Yeah, my, certainly this book predates the pandemic, but it did change a lot. And it was the spur to get it finished, apart from anything else. And I think what really emerged from especially writing the, the later parts of the book in the midst of lockdown and general pandemic times was, yes, this sense that it's a perspective shift that has enabled a lot of people to see something about how they're using their time that they hadn't previously seen. Obviously, just the fact of the pandemic in terms of all the death and bereavement is an obvious reminder of how yeah. fragile life is, especially if anyone close to you has sort of had their lives cut short by it. But also just more generally, for those of us who are fortunate to have escaped that, we suddenly had to stop doing all sorts of things that we maybe didn't realise how much we'd missed them, certain kinds of socialising. For me, it was singing in an amateur choir, which I, you know, I knew I enjoyed, but I wasn't and remain not very good at. So I was <laughs> kind of surprised at how much I missed doing that when singing in a choir became like literally the most lethal thing you could do. And then on the other hand, you know, I think it's well attested. Lots of people have talked about and there's been news reporting about people finding that certain things they're no longer doing, like commuting or remaining at their desk till 6.30pm just to show that they're hardworking when actually their job wouldn't need it or something like that. They're quite happy to not do those things anymore. And some aspects of working from home, for those who've done that, have been really wonderful. So it is this kind of moment to sort of think again about what you might want to include in your life when it comes to your use of time. Another writer, not me, who I quote in the book, brought up the, the idea that it's a Marie Kondo thing, right? We can sort mm. of decide what to let back in now that we're slowly 
returning to something like normal, it's a moment to be like, well, maybe that thing is really important to bring back in. That other thing, maybe yet, maybe that's gone and that's totally fine. That's interesting because perhaps that brings on this concept of control and how in control of our time and maybe the choices around our time we really are. And you mentioned the book, certainly your family. I don't know whether you would describe yourself as an obsessive planner, but you say you come from a family of obsessive planners. So I don't know whether you were distancing yourself from them or saying, no, no, I'm, I'm one of those two. But certainly that resonates with me because I'm somebody who, like, I love a plan. I think plans help us to feel in control. I think they often, certainly when I was thinking about why do I like to have a plan, I think it helps to give you something to aim for and feel excited about. I suspect it can also get in the way a bit of spending our time in the way that, that really works or making changes kind of in the present. So I just wondered, because you explore this idea of control and time from quite a few different angles in the book. So do you think we need to let go of the idea that we can aspire to be in control of our time? Do you think we need to replace that with a different mindset that might be more useful? Yeah, I think the answer to this is that it's it's worth saying a little bit about what I mean and what we're talking about by control. It is specifically, and I think that this is embedded in a lot of our anxieties around time, is this desire for us a kind of control or a control that is premised on something that is not possible, right? So I'm not talking about feeling your papers are pretty well organized and you're you know what your most important priorities are and you have a certain sense of like, okay, I'm surfing through the workday fairly confidently here. That's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think that a lot of what we're trying to do and a lot of what a lot of time management advice sort of unwittingly encourages us to try to do is to have the kind of control that is premised on the idea that you can handle everything, that you can get around to all the things that matter, that you never have to disappoint anybody or drop a ball or keep anybody waiting, that there doesn't need to be any conflicts in your life, that you don't have to make tough choices between different ways of spending your time, that there's no discomfort, blah, blah, blah. And that, I think, is the kind of control that we can't have. And I think the way to let go of that or to start letting go of that is really just to see how impossible it is. I mean, once you understand, as I try to explain in the book based on my own bitter experience that if you try really hard to get good at getting on top of your email like to be the best person you know at processing email all that happens is that you get more email because your (laughs) replies lead to other replies and lead to other replies and if you see these kind of patterns that are operating where trying to become the perfectly efficient super optimized person is actually just going to make you busier and actually busier on less important things it's actually quite easy to let go of it because it's a bit like someone realizing that they've been trying to like, I don't know, make two plus two add up to five or jump a mile in the air. There's just things that human beings can't do. So I think when you see that we live in this world of kind of infinite inputs and we are finite individuals and something's got to give, you've got to make tough choices. And every decision to use an hour for anything is a decision to not use it for a million other things. And I could go on. Actually, that kind of impossible control it just becomes less of a alluring prospect because it's sort of you sort of achieve disillusionment it is a kind of way of admitting defeat because it's admitting defeat in an impossible project but i think it's really powerful and empowering kind of defeat because it's then when you're no longer trying to do that impossible thing that you can really sort of bring your time and focus and energy onto doing a few meaningful possible things with life and that's when you can really be building a meaningful life. 
One of the other areas that really stuck with me in the book, which is probably the area I found most challenging because I read lots of the book and, you know, you're either mentally or actually genuinely kind of nodding along and and underlining and kind of going, I either really agree with that, I really want to try that out. And then there was one bit that I was grappling with because I think I couldn't quite work it out and how it would work in reality. So I was like, oh, that's a good one to put you on the spot with a bit more. And and it might be that I've not interpreted it in the way that you were intending. But certainly there is this sense in what you're writing around, we have got to learn to make hard choices. And by hard choices, um, you give some really good examples. So it's not just about saying no to things. It's about saying no to some things that we want to do. And that one, I sort of thought, yeah, I can get on board with that. And I think that's a good nuance to just the kind of saying no, that so often people find hard. And one of the other ideas that comes up is to focus, to focus on maybe one thing, one big thing, rather than multiple things. And the thing I found difficult about that is in all of my career and in the job that I do now, that to me felt like too much of a luxury. That felt like a luxury that perhaps I'm not in control of and I need to have the multiple things happening. And you might challenge me on that need to have the multiple things, but I need to have more than one thing happening at once because that is the expectations of the job that I'm doing or the organisation that I work for. So I'm not in a privileged enough position to say, oh, I'm just going to choose to do one thing brilliantly. Because if you ask me, can you describe something where you could spend the next six months doing one thing that you would really enjoy and could really explore and that you that would give you a lot of energy, I can tell you what that might look like. But then the reality of making that happen feels almost like a dream scenario. It felt very far from practical day to day. So I just wonder if we could talk a bit more, mainly so that you can help me, to be honest, about this idea of like choices and time. And and when we say about making choices about doing one big thing, perhaps what might that look like for listeners? And it is an issue, I know. I mean, it's like, I don't think if you looked at my work, you would interpret it as literally doing one thing at a time completely. So let me say a bit more about that. So the hard, the idea of hard choices, I think, is just simply the idea that we have to choose both in terms of how we use a specific day, but also or hour, but also just whether we ever get around to doing something. We have to choose between priorities that are both meaningful and both of them are valuable. A lot of people interpret this importance of saying no thing with this implication that if they got really good at saying no, they could somehow say no to all the things that they don't want to do. Then their life would just be completely full of all the things that they do want to do. But I think even if you are in a position where your work life is full of great stuff that you find meaningful and fulfilling, the nature, especially of the world we live in now, is that you're going to have to say no to some things that you do want to do because there are too many things that you might want to do compared to the finite time that you have. So when it comes to implementing this in terms of doing one thing, I think it's really important to unpack what that means. One of the ways in which we try to feel in control of time that is actually very counterproductive is that we try to sort of have our fingers in a million pies at once Mm -hmm. because then it feels like you're sort of taking care of business, you're like tending to all these different things. But what really happens is, for almost everybody, is that as soon as one of those projects becomes difficult or challenging, like all meaningful projects will at some point, it's much easier to just bounce off to one of the other ones instead of sticking with it. So the more projects that you have sort of on the front burner, the easier it is 
to never really make progress on any one of them because all these other ones are there for you to go and sort of take refuge in when one of them gets difficult. But then obviously, you know, if we're going to take this to a really logical extreme, you can't literally do one thing at a time. So I think one way to implement the logic of this while sort of accepting that in reality, we all have to do a certain amount of things at the same sort of time period is if you can nominate one major goal at a time in your work, or perhaps you can nominate one major goal in each domain of your work and sort of have this very clear mental distinction between the current focal goal and the smaller stuff that has to be kept ticking over and resist the urge to put more and more and more into that ticking over category because then you just end up where you started with like 12 big projects at once. And so when you say it's a luxury, I think the thing to try to see is that it does trigger anxiety, right? To, to say there's five really important things I could be doing with my main focal work time at the moment, but I'm only going to focus on one of them until it's finished and then move on to the next one. Like that totally makes us anxious. And if it's making you anxious because of a certain circumstance where you'll literally like lose your job if you don't do these two things, maybe that's a time to spread your energies. But almost always actually tolerating some of that anxiety and doing one project first anyway is going to lead to greater productivity in the long run. And in a way, you're always only doing one thing at a time anyway, right? So if you've got project A and project B, both clients are breathing down your neck and you feel like, well, I don't have the luxury of just doing one and then the other. Well, probably if you do both of them at the same time, you're going to be just keeping both clients waiting to an extra amount of time. If you did one and if you did one and then the other sequentially, you might end up in a better position because one client might be really cross, but the other client might be really pleased. And that might be a better arrangement going forward than two fairly disgruntled clients. So it's definitely got to be contextual. And then I think also on the level of individual tasks, it's a question of doing one thing at a time in that very literal sense. Don't seriously try to be having an important phone call about something at work while you're also trying to write out an invoice that you have to send or something like that. With a very few exceptions, like vacuuming while listening to a podcast, almost always you can't actually multitask. You're just switching your attention between things. And if people are finding that they are a bit addicted, um, I don't know if that, that's the right word, if they're a bit addicted to the dopamine is the kind of the chemical hit, the release that we get from the the pings, the emails, the looking at social media, scrolling, all that kind of stuff. What helps to break that pattern? Have you seen anything in the things that you've read or perhaps even in your own experiences, which has helped to kind of go, let's use technology in a way that helps us with our time rather than works against us? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. And I mean, part of it is these sort of environmental changes. If you do not have Twitter on your phone, you're much less likely to check Twitter on your phone because you're going to have to like <laughs> download the app just so that, you know, I have a little bit more control over my own, you know, I, I'm deciding a little, a little bit more when I, when I sit down and do those things on a laptop. I mean, there are also obviously all sorts of apps like blocking your access to the internet for certain hours of the day or blocking your access to social media in pre-planned ways. And there's nothing wrong with those, but again, I think this is a thing where a perspective shift is far more powerful probably than, that kind of technique. And I, and I write in the book about how, you know, I think part of the problem about digital distraction 
part of it is Silicon Valley, these terribly crafty ways of distracting yeah. us. But the other part is that we sort of collaborate. We sort of want to be distracted when we're doing difficult, challenging work or having difficult moments as parents or as partners, whatever. It just feels nicer to scuttle away into distraction. And so, again, this is because these difficult things are meaningful and they push us up against our edges and our limits and we don't get to control how they unfold and they might your big creative project might not work your conversation with your partner that you've been know you need to have might leave you feeling vulnerable you know so obviously we prefer this kind of like okay i'm in control now i'm just scrolling mm-hmm. through my phone on on social media and again i think a huge amount of there's a huge power in just realizing and just sort of not expecting it to feel otherwise not expecting a difficult piece of creative work to feel totally great from the very beginning all the way through and just when that discomfort arises being like oh, okay yeah I can expect this this is not a disastrous sign that everything's wrong this is actually a sign that I'm doing something meaningful Cal Newport who I'm sure you've come across his work has this great observation that there's no such thing as writer's block but only because what some people call writer's block is just the feeling of it being hard to do writing so I think a lot of this just comes down to the understanding that things that matter to us often trigger discomfort in us for predictable reasons. It's not the kind of discomfort that's going to kill you. It is the kind of discomfort you can just sort of hang out with and be friendly towards. If you're expecting it in that way, it's just much less likely that you're going to sort of run away in a panic. And there are these 10 tools that you do finish the book with. Is there one that you have found particularly useful? Like I say, I sort of really connected with this idea of, oh, that's interesting, like single-use digital devices took me back in time and kind of brought me up to date and thought, actually, I can really see how I could do some things differently. And like I say, it might make me a bit nervous, but I was quite keen to try them out, which is one that you have maybe tried in your own work and just found to be really helpful. I found this idea of limiting work in progress to be really helpful. Um, This is this idea, again, it's a bit related to doing one thing at a time, but it's maybe a little bit more forgiving than the idea of just one thing at a time, which is the idea of using some form of system for organizing your tasks and your projects. That involves pushing yourself to focus on a handful of them and finishing those before you move on to others. So the example I give in the back of the book is a very simple way of doing this is to have two to-do lists, a closed list and an open list. An open to-do list just means you put everything on it. Maybe it's got 200 items on it. It's crazy. It just keeps getting longer, whatever. But then you have this closed list, which has maybe five slots on it. And the practice here would be that you move tasks over from the long, the open list to the closed list until you've got those five slots are filled. And then the rule is you can't move any further ones onto that closed list until you've freed up a slot by doing one of those tasks. So it's like a bottleneck in your system that you're very deliberately choosing to take things through. I use a slightly different system now related to this workflow management approach called Kanban that you might be aware of. It's originally Japanese factory approach, but there's a whole world of what's called personal Kanban, using this to manage your your own individual tasks for people in with jobs like mine. And again, it's just a question of saying, okay, I'm not going to literally do one thing at a time, but like these are the five things on my plate. And until one or two of them are done, I'm not going to let other things onto my plate, even if they feel really urgent. Putting aside literal emergencies, it's just a question of like, I'm going to, I'm going to live with it that there's these 12 things that I feel I ought to be doing. 
because there's these five things that I'm going to do first. Getting good at that kind of steady processing of work is extremely satisfying because after even just a few days, you realize you're actually meeting more of your commitments and keeping more of your promises and keeping people waiting less, even though you are sort of keeping tasks waiting as the practice itself. And just before we get to our final question, where we always ask our experts for a bit of career advice for our listeners, you actually ask some really good questions in the book. You have these kind of five questions that you encourage people to reflect on. And you have a brilliant phrase in there in almost like, enjoy the experience of questioning yourself about the questions, if that makes sense. I just wondered if you could share maybe one of those with our listeners in terms of a question that they could go away after listening to today and just think about and reflect on for themselves that might be helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason that these are done as questions is because I think that really deep answers can come from inside you to the right questions, much deeper than like anything I can tell a reader of this book, not knowing the details of their lives. So I guess the one which um, I think is worth talking about here, and I guess it, it does bleed into my career advice, is this question, in which areas of life are you still holding back until you feel like you know what you're doing? And I wrote a piece ages ago for The Guardian that became, I think, one of the most popular pieces I've ever done. The headline was, everyone is totally just winging it all the time. I think so many people, certainly me in the past, are waiting for the time when they're going to feel as competent as certain people around them or certain mentors before they let themselves dive into certain things. And by and large, that's just another manifestation of this idea that you want to, you only want to take action when you know you can do it fearlessly and with a feeling of total security. And once you see that that's kind of never going to happen, it's much easier to take those actions now. And to remember, you know, the only reason that you're the only person with an inner monologue of self-doubt, as far as you know, is because you can't hear other people's inner monologues, not because they don't have them. And again, yeah, it's sort of an approach to imposter syndrome that says not you're not an imposter, so don't worry about it. But actually, like, we're all imposters. None of us know what is happening in the next moment. You know, the most powerful people in the world, President of the United States, is as ill-informed about tomorrow as anyone else, because it's tomorrow and it hasn't happened yet. And so I think that it's just really important to not assume that you're going to postpone something you really care about until you think you know how to do it. Also, with all sorts of jobs, maybe it's not a universal truth, but certainly all sorts of creative jobs, starting to do it is how you will get the feedback that allows you to get better at it. So it's a catch-22 if you don't start. And so that, I think, is a really useful thing. So the question is, to say it again, because questions are more important than my advice, I think it's like, is there some area of your life or your work right now that you're telling yourself you're sort of, you really want to do, but you're not quite going there yet because you think you're going to be more ready at a certain point? And is there anything else additional on terms of career advice that you would like to share with listeners just as the final, final kind of way of bringing everything together for today? Well, it probably would have been that as the most important thing. But I think another part, which I do also talk about in the book, is just this idea that I think a lot of us can spend a lot of time trying to do the things that we think we ought to be doing with our lives, either that our parents instilled in us or that we got from somewhere or that the culture seems to tell us. And there's a lovely quote from Stephen Cope, the spiritual writer and the yoga, he's a yoga teacher as well. I think he says that, you know, at some point in our lives, we have to face the fact that nobody nobody really cares what we do with our lives. Now that can be misinterpreted. Hopefully you have someone in your life or a few people who care that what you're doing with your life makes you happy. And it's useful to do things in your life that 
help the world, you know, a little bit in some way that are of service in some way. But I think that's really important. It's like, if there's something you want to do with your life within certain legal limits, you know, you should probably just do it and realize that the people that you think you're going to disappoint by choosing that path, you're not going to disappoint. And if there is anyone who's going to be seriously disappointed, maybe bearing their disappointment is a, is a price worth paying. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found that helpful. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, we're now going to finish today's episode with a very short clip from one of the uncertainty experts so you can get a feel for what the interactive documentary has in store for you if you'd like to get involved. And as a reminder, there's the link to the documentary so you can sign up in the show notes. And don't forget to use that code squiggly because you'll get a bit of a bonus discount as well. I hope you find it interesting and we'll be back with you again soon. Bye for now. Hello, I'm Catherine Templer-Lewis and I'm the lead scientist on The Uncertainty Experts. Morgan Godwin was sentenced to 20 years in a maximum security prison, but like all The Uncertainty Experts, used the strategies she learned in the shadows to become a leading light. Morgan left prison with degrees in law and languages to become a human rights activist and has just led a historic human rights victory in the USA, changing laws and saving lives. When I was sitting in jail, you have no idea when your next court date is. You don't know if the next guard coming on shift is the cruel one who tortures you or is one of the kind ones who will leave you alone. So there's just this perilous uncertainty. You have to turn inwards and control all of your internal variables. One of the things that helped me most in jail that I have been doing almost every day during COVID, it's to redefine productivity. It's to end the morning redefine what is going to make that day be defined as a success. And so every morning I start the day with this list and and I'm just very rigid about it. And it can be the most simple thing. It can be something that's going to take me 30 seconds, but I write them on my to-do list. And as I do them, I cross them off. Now what Morgan's describing here is a very clever emotional regulation system. 
Because when we get stressed, what's called our fight or flight, our sympathetic nervous system response kicks off. It's that horrible feeling. It runs on adrenaline. You get butterflies in your stomach. Your heart goes faster. And in that state, you cannot focus or be productive because the amygdala, the emotional part of the brain, takes over and the prefrontal cortex, the decision-making, is out of control. What she's doing by making a list and ticking things off is by actually helping her brain release dopamine, the reward chemical. It then calms her system, she feels in control, and triggers the opposing system, the parasympathetic nervous system, our rest and digest system, where everything calms down and we can focus, be our best, and be our most productive. So actually, it's a positive coping strategy. And when we did the uncertainty experts, every single person, myself included, admitted we've all put something on a to-do list that we've already done just so we can cross it off and feel good about it. But actually, that's okay. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 